broadcast out of New York City. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on Monday, November 17th, 2014. I'm Dr. Len Saputo. And I'm registered nurse Vicki Saputo. Thank you for joining us on Prescriptions for Health on the Progressive Radio Network on the first and third Monday of every month from 10 to 11 a.m. Eastern Time and from 7 to 8 a.m. Pacific Time. And remember that our shows are available 24-7 on prn.fm and drsaputo.com. Today you'll hear Nurse Vicki's 2020 health tips at 20 after and 20 to the hour. And we've got another great show for you today that's going to include... Why should we drug test doctors and nurses even when they're in training? And can smoking cause weight gain? (laughs) There's a twist, huh? And just because a company does public service, does it mean they're selling worthy products of public service images? And how weight loss pills can make you gain weight? Boy, everything's backwards today, huh? And lastly, why U.S. healthcare continues to be ranked last amongst industrialized countries. You know, recently there was a proposition on the ballot in California to vote whether doctors should be drug tested, and it was voted down. And drugs as well as alcohol are not just a problem for doctors in practice. It's also come to light that besides medical students and, and student nurses, Other college students often indulge in alcohol and drug abuse, and the prevalence of hazardous drinking needs further investigation. So what's the cause? Is it due to personal problems, the freedom of being away from home, peer pressure, or pressure from training? If that was a multiple-choice question, it would be all of the above. (laughs) And I think it depends on the situation. There's so many reasons why people who are in their training and who have had difficult trainings to become the profession that they're in have a difficult time with life. They're very often pressured into doing things that they're really not so sure they want to do. And it doesn't mean that just because a nurse goes to a nursing school or a doctor to to medical school, it doesn't mean they're not really wanting to be doctors. But what you have to go through to get there can be unbelievably difficult. And then you couple that with the dysfunctional family lives that we all have to some extent what would you expect? People are going to be frustrated. Well, and- I know when I was in nursing school that um, a lot of the girls dropped out. Mm-hmm. I mean, we certainly didn't end up with the number that started. What were some of the reasons why they dropped out? Well, the pressure of of the school. But mm-hmm. I don't remember anything about people drinking when I was in nursing school. I do remember people drinking when I was in university. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of that going on. Well, but I really d- wasn't aware of any of that when I was in nursing school, but maybe things are different now. According to this study, they are. Well, maybe they're different. They're just reporting what's there now. And I know when I was in medical school, there was plenty of drinking going on. I mean, it was, for a while there, it was like the thing to do. Boy, I mean, could you imagine having a, <laughs> a resident working on you? That, well, that's that, frustrated and, and is drinking and, too much. I mean, and hung you, over. you look at the statistics of The number of people, the percentage of people in medical school that contemplate suicide, you'd be staggered. It's staggering to look at the number. It's 11%. And these are big studies, and they're repeatable. Well, you know, the thing about the on the ballot for, you know, voting whether doctors should be drug tested in Mm -hmm. California, and it was voted down. But what's interesting to me is what would it hurt? Well, I mean, you don't want to have your doctor on drugs or alcohol when they're operating on you, for example. Well, or even when they're giving you advice or if they're not really into what they're doing and they're using alcohol to try and solve some of their personal problems. You really don't need that. You, I mean, when we're working at our best, we're not that good sometimes. 
So it's just interesting that it was voted down. I'm not really sure. Well, California why. voters do some funny things. I mean, we voted down GMO. I know we did. <laughs> it was well. crazy. I mean, would you really not want to know? Is it really okay to to not be told what what you're being fed in your food, and if it's got GMO in it, you just don't want to hear about it? That's I mean, crazy. That's it's insanity. And so you have to go back and look at what's happening. So going back to nursing school, I wanted to relate another issue that happened one time. I was in my um, uh, surgery training, Mm -hmm. you know, operating room. Yeah. And we got done, and we had to clean up the room and everything, and there was some nurse in there, some cute little bitch. Oh, careful now. (laughs) That started throwing the stuff on the floor and telling me to clean it up. Whoa. And I... I'd never even known her before or anything, and I was well-behaved and doing what I was supposed to be doing. And yeah. I don't know what her deal was except for some sort of a power thing. Oh, look. Let's let's look a little bit deeper. Why do people do things that seem stupid or when they're angry and aggressive and, and being mean to people? It's because they, they have a lot of problems themselves that they haven't worked out. And what comes to my mind when I hear about things like that actually is more compassion because I know not that I think what they did to you was right. And I wouldn't condone that kind of action. There's a big difference between condoning something and forgiving somebody for being the way they are because they can't do any better. And the pressure that people are under in in training in any area where it's competitive and adversarial and where it's difficult to get through and you have to study a lot of things, many of which you're never going to see again that don't make any difference, that are not important in being in the profession that you're in. When you see things like that happening, it's understandable how people are angry and frustrated and they pass along their own feelings and they may direct it on anybody who's below them that they can get away with pressuring. Well, that's what I think a lot of the doctors did to you, right? When you're the medical students? Well, they tried. Yeah, they didn't do so well with me. (laughs) I'm the sort of person that stands up no matter what the cause is. Oh, yeah? Well, what happened (laughs) when you ended up having that anaphylactic reaction? That's a good point. When I was a freshman in medical school taking pharmacology, I was required to do an experiment where we took an antibiotic. We took sulfonamides, and we were going to measure urinary excretion rates of them. And I went to the professor and I said, you know, I don't think that's a good thing to do. We should not be giving medical students, you know, the doctors of tomorrow, something where 10% of them are going to have a problem with the drug and some unlucky person is going to wind up with an anaphylactic reaction. (laughs) And of course, who (laughs) who is the one that got the anaphylactic reaction? What they told me was, look, you want to pass the course, do the experiment. So I did. You were right. I got pressured into that. I broke out in hives. I passed out. I threw up. I wound up, woke up in the ICU. And it was two years later that they finally stopped requiring that particular study to be done. I wonder why. Well, I, <laughs> There might have been more students that that happened to. Well, there were before me, too. Did that doctor apologize to you? No. They just said, here, take so. these antihistamines. I spent the afternoon in the ICU, went home. Never heard from them again. And what it boils down to is, yes, they're trying to teach us something that's useful because it's good to know how antibiotics come in and out of the body. But it's even more useful to learn what I learned, but not at the expense of a potential fatality. Well, see, too, I think the other thing that happens is a lot of the instructors are are doing this power play thing. Yes, because they're coming from the same place. 
The best. Like, inst- I had to go through it, so you're going to go through it. Some of that's true. I had to, to work hard and not get much sleep, so why should we lessen your hours? Well, I'll tell you another interesting story. And I won't mention the name of this doctor because he's dead, and his family would, would recognize, obviously, what the situation was. Plus, it was a long time ago. But he was the best professor that I had in medical school. And we were fairly close. In fact, we played tennis together. We played a few tennis tournaments together while I was in medical school. And this man was under tremendous pressure to publish, and he had family problems, and he wound up taking an overdose of secondol. And he woke up from it. That's a sleeping pill. Sleeping pill, yeah. One that easily causes a lot of suicides. And I just remember the, the look on his face and, the, and the, how he was smiling, but I could tell he was so sad. And he said, I'm sorry. And he went back and finally did it a few months later, and he killed himself. And what I felt was a tremendous compassion for him, for the colleagues like him who had gone through so much in the way of pressure, that what they were doing with their lives where it was dysfunctional was so difficult for them that they couldn't take it anymore. We shouldn't be driving people to situations like that. And that's what happens a lot of the time in difficult educational fields where it doesn't need to be as ruthless as it is, and where we should be teaching people, particularly those that are going to be healers, how to be con- compassionate, because it starts at home. Well, the other thing that uh, can happen is that the people in the medical field that are working in hospitals and mm-hmm. so forth have easy access to medications. Oh, a lot of them are taking narcotics and sleeping pills and all kinds of things. That, and they're not just, I mean, a few people are selling them, but the, the, a lot of them are using them. And again, you have to look at why does this happen? Why is there so much unhappiness in the long their hours and the torture? Well, some of <laughs> it's pressure. That. Plus, you take in the set of problems you have with your life, and a lot of the time, when we're we're young, when we go through education, we haven't resolved the problems from our dysfunctional families. And not only that. When we go through training, we're not used to being around people that are that sick or people that die and, and all the emotions that a lot can of go pressure along with in that. that. I think we should be very understanding about people who are doing things like that. We're using, using alcohol or drugs or God knows what. We should be very compassionate about supporting them, finding out what we can do to help them rather than create programs to try and punish them for when they get caught. Or do something to them that's negative so that there's a kind of pressure that says, you do that again, we're going to kick your teeth in or something. Because that's what it boils down to. They can make them go work in the unit where the patients are having the DTs. Well, I did that too. Actually, I've taken care of people in the DTs. I had some guy pee on me one time. He tried to get out of bed and he just peed right on me. Yeah, well, you know, (laughs) I worked in in those units too and I had a totally different response. For me, it was, oh my God. These poor people are so far gone uh, that, and they're most of them have cirrhosis, and they have complications of cirrhosis like GI bleeds, and they and they're not doing very well. And my heart kind of went out to them, even though I felt it was very difficult to try and get through to them because they were f- so far gone. Particularly, I mean, some of them at, at age twenty were longtime alcoholics who would die in a year. I had a patient one time that was. was in a coma Mm -hmm. due to her alcoholism and her liver failure Mm -hmm. and so forth. And the family had a special nurse that sat with her all the time. But I was the nurse on the, on the floor. I was the registered nurse Mm -hmm. and, and I would, I was responsible for this patient, even though she had a sitter Mm -hmm. and I would go in and we would turn her and so forth together. Mm -hmm. And, 
And uh, I just thought, how horrible. And then one day, she came to. Mm-hmm. And the first thing she said was she wanted a drink. Yeah, I can understand and that. And I thought, all this, and she just wants another drink. Well, see, these are people, Vicki, who have so many problems that they choose a way of numbing themselves up. And then they become addicted to it, and they can't get off of it, both psychologically and physically. And so I can understand that. We're not very good at solving the problems of people who are that far advanced with diseases like this. And it's it's really a shame because as a society, we failed. But it's, a lot of times with young people, they just think it's fun, and they're not thinking that well, far ahead of what, what could end up happening. There is a bit of that. You know, kids like to experiment around. In fact, adults like to experiment around with alcohol and LSD and, and different drugs. It can be dangerous if it's in the wrong setting. And some of, I can understand some of that, but most of the time when people are experimenting a lot of the time with things like that, it's because they need some kind of solution in their lives that they haven't been able to find. And so they choose that because it takes them out of their life and kind of numbs them up to that. And well, and they think they're having fun and they're well, part and there's peer pressure. Well, they're part of the group. There can be. It depends on the setting. Not everybody has peer pressure, but that's a good point. I mean, in college, you certainly see that. Well, and like I said at the beginning, you know, a lot of kids are just doing it because they're feeling free. You know, they're away from home. I can can do what I want. Do what they want. Yeah, and they weren't allowed to do things like that. And what we need is an educational program that teaches kids starting in grade school, in kindergarten, where they learn about family problems and they learn about the challenges they're facing in their lives. They learn about bullying and things of that sort, so they can have some kind of handle of what's happening and why people do drink and try to prevent that from happening with them. Well, I think where a lot of the prevention would happen would be to teach people how to deal with their stress without taking drugs or alcohol. That's the secret, to try and resolve those things in a way that works for the person who says, I give up, I can't do it any other way. So that's... That's a terrible that's situation. What, but see, that's why it needs to start young, because there right. are a lot of kids that start drinking, hiding it, you know, or oh, taking drugs. Try and... age eight. Alcoholics, by the time they're 12 or 14, a lot of the time in the ghetto. I worked at Highland County Hospital in Oakland uh, when I was going through my training. It's a long story how I got there, but that's where I was. And I saw this happening, and I saw people dying in their teens from alcoholism. And we saw people dying from drug overdoses. There's a lot more of that in some ways today because there are more drugs out there that are more popular. And a lot of times the kids don't realize the seriousness of how much they can drink. Like they might drink a whole bottle and that could kill them. Or they might be taking drugs with it. They do that. And again, we have to ask ourselves the question, why? And then we have to be able to understand the reasons why they do that. Our job isn't to punish them so much. I mean, there may be a bit of that involved. But the major thing is, why do they do that? Why do they choose to do that? Why do they need it? And what can we do to help them so they don't want to choose that as a solution? Like, why do kids want to put a funnel in their throat and pour beer down it? Well, they're so insecure, I would say most of the time in that setting, that they're wanting their peers to cheer them on so they get socially accepted for that. I mean, why do uh, people in gangs do the things that they do? 
Why do some gangs require that you shoot somebody before you become a member? I mean, these are all things that have to do with social values and social acceptance, and it boils down to how do you feel about yourself? Are you strong enough on the inside that you don't care about peer pressure from the outside? And that you can learn to say no. See, that's another thing that I no, think needs can. to be taught young. Well, it's it's not it like be. Nancy Reagan said, who said, just say no. Yeah, it's not just say no, no. But, but to learn to say no. Well, you have to learn to be able to do that for the reasons that work for you rather than follow the directions that somebody else says. You have to say no in that setting. Now, some of that will work to an extent, but... What you really want is the person on the inside to be strong enough that they choose a solution for their stresses that are better than turn into drugs or alcohol. And when it starts to permeate into the medical profession, into the doctors and nurses in training, and into doctors after they become doctors, we've got a major problem here that's reflecting what's going on in our cultural values that leads to these kinds of, of solutions. Like I've told this story before, but there was a nurse that I used to work with in the intensive care unit. Mm. And I heard later, you know, several years later when I, you know, mm-hmm. after a lot of time had gone by, I hadn't seen her or anything, but mm-hmm. I'd heard that she was fired because of she was taking drugs. And I thought, how scary, because when you're working in ICU, oh, that's yeah. a really important job with the patients. You well, know, how, you can't be on drugs when you're doing well, that. Well, how about the neurosurgeon, okay, or the or the heart surgeon or the vascular surgeon who's an alcoholic or is on drugs? To or the pilot, going? you know, yeah. Well, yeah, well, that's, they're all very obvious, uh, a huge problem. You sure don't want somebody operating on you who's hand shaking well, or threading a catheter into your artery that shaking. Lots of problems that come from that. And what we need are better solutions than what we have. And so do you then as a citizen, okay, deserve to know if your doctors can pass a drug test or your nurse can pass a drug test? The answer to that, I think, is yes. And I think the reason that 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 law, that bill wasn't passed is because people want to trust their doctors. They don't want to think that that's a problem. So it may be like, oh, we don't want to do that. I mean, My doctor would never do that. And you may have a wonderful doctor who's got personal problems that are huge. Maybe he or she is going through a divorce. Maybe there was the death of a child. Maybe there was some other problem that they had that they just can't cope with for one reason or another. Those things happen. And you, as a a person, deserve to have somebody who can focus fully on you and can give you the service that you deserve. Be very clear-minded and clear-headed Medicine is That's not easy right. to, 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 to practice. We, we have enough trouble when we do the very best we can, let alone when we've got problems that compound that and take away from our focus and concentration. I mean, we're dealing with human lives. So I have a lot of compassion for the reasons why things start like that. And I, I want to help people who are in that situation, but I also don't want to expose the American public to problems like this, so I would be for doing it in this setting, but also offering training for these people that may help them. Anyway, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Saputa here with Nurse Vicki, and it's time for Vicki's first 2020 tip on why include curcumin in your diet? And when we come back, we're talking about can smoking actually cause weight gain? Mm-hmm. 
chronic inflammation can damage our bodies. And one of the things that it can do is increase the risk of cardiovascular disease. It can also increase our risk for getting joint pain and having memory loss and cognitive decline and even accelerate skin aging and wrinkles. Absolutely. And there's a lot more. But low-grade inflammation is becoming recognized as the root cause of the development of cognitive decline. And before the cat's out of the bag and you desperately turn to drugs for your ailments. That try, don't work very well, by the way. Yeah. Uh, try curcumin. Mm-hmm. It's an alternative solution that's safe and it's an effective. It's anti-inflammatory. It's good for your brain and your memory. And curcumin's found in the root of the turmeric plant and it's found in curry. So you can get it in a supplement form also, and it fights body-wide inflammation and it boosts detoxification. It's even a mood enhancer. And then sometimes it's difficult to absorb. It's not easily absorbed. So pepperine, black pepper, can boost the absorption of the curcumin. Oh, boy, that sounds tasty. Yeah, well, it probably is. (laughs) Yeah, which often is found also in the curcumin supplement. So. Remember that curcumin can help your aches and pains and stiffness and increase your sense of vitality and significantly improve your brain health. You know, one of my good friends, Ed Bowman, who who is is the founder of the Bowman Colleges of Nutrition, says it and he sums it up pretty easily. He says, fruits and vegetables, seeds and nuts, herbs and spices, and have a nice day. You follow that regimen, chances are you're going to be healthy and happy. Good way to go. For those of you that are interested, by the way, in learning more about what you can do if you are getting Alzheimer's disease or want to prevent it, if you go to drsabuta.com and you put in Alzheimer's disease or take the Alzheimer's survey, health assessment, which is free and takes about three minutes, a ton of information will be available for you that will tell you exactly what you can do. Yeah, because there are other things besides curcumin. Five or six right things. And some of them are tasty. Some of them are. That's right. You know, it's no secret that smoking and secondhand smoke is harmful to our health. And now research is adding more to the long list of effects from cigarette smoke. People used to think that smoking helped to keep them slim, and that was one of the reasons that they didn't want to quit. Mm -hmm. And now we've learned that smoking, and especially exposure to secondhand smoke, can actually cause weight gain and diabetes. Isn't that interesting? It makes more sense to me to think of that than it does to say, well, it keeps you thin. And I don't think any studies have been done, at least I don't know of one, where we took people who weren't smokers and started them on started them smoking, and then followed their weight over fifteen or twenty years to see what happens. I don't know of a study like that, but I do know that people who are long time smokers, when they quit smoking, what we've seen in clinical practice is they put on the pounds. But those are two different things, not the same way to understand it. And then when you look at <clears throat> at somebody taking in a toxin, which of course there are thousands of toxins in cigarette smoke. There are thousands of compounds Yeah, and lots more than what used to be in them. Well, that's because the companies add things to it to make them more addictive. (laughs) They're not stupid, and they want to sell cigarettes, so why not addict the population so they can't get off of it? So when we're looking at, at the fact that there are a lot of toxins there, we know that toxins cause obesity. It's one of the causes of obesity. And how does it work? We're looking at the effect of these toxins on insulin and leptin. And in this particular study, they looked at the effect uh, that smoking had on on insulin and found out that it caused insulin resistance. 
And insulin resistance means that your insulin doesn't work like it like you'd like it to. It can't lower blood sugar as effectively as normal insulin does, and you wind up with a with a uh, predisposition for type two diabetes. So now, <laughs> right along there with arteriosclerosis and strokes and and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and hypertension and cancer and yeah. osteoporosis and gum disease yeah, and cataracts and macular degeneration, yeah. <laughs> we can add this to the list. Yeah, well. And Diabetes makes, and obesity. Well, it makes sense to me. It, it's not a surprise at all. In fact, as I said, I would expect that. Because whenever you're inhibiting the effect of insulin, you're going to make more insulin in your pancreas. So in type 2 diabetes, there's insulin excess, not insulin shortage. But the insulin is, is made in excessive amounts because it doesn't work as well to lower blood sugar as normal insulin that doesn't have this insulin-resistant effect in it. so you In other wa- words, it's like it dilutes it, makes it weaker. <clears throat> well, it makes the insulin less strong, but when the levels are high, it does some other bad things. It tends to convert sugar into fat, and then it blocks the fat that's in the fat cell so that it, it, it can't be broken down. So it blocks the enzyme called lipase, which takes the fat in the cell and makes it available to be burned for fuel. So you really get it from lots of different directions when you start with insulin resistance. And, of course, that leads to problems with type 2 diabetes, with heart attacks and strokes and all the things that you mentioned here that are related to arteriosclerosis. So one of the things that I got almost a kick out of is I'm reading this article, Uh and it says, how do we reverse this? Uh, We inhibit ceramide with a drug. Yeah, right. It's like, why not quit smoking? Okay. Well, I know it's not easy to quit smoking, but, you know, that would be a start if you could do that. All right, so what's ceramide? It's a lipid that's found in, in, uh, in the bloodstream that is able to alter the mitochondria, okay, the little energy packets in cells that allow the mitochondria to respond to insulin and, and preserve insulin sensitivity, which is what you want. So could you find something then to block the ceramide so that you can keep on smoking and not have the problem of gaining weight. But well, you know what? The maybe, second, but what a stupid but thing. But the secondhand smokers aren't going to be taking this drug. Nobody's going to be taking the so drug. So at least, you know, if you don't want to quit smoking or you're ha- having too much trouble and you've t- just made that choice that you're going to live with it, at least don't do it around other people and don't do it around your kids. They're yeah. just like innocent bystanders. Well, that's right. And that's not fair to f- to other people. In fact... I have this vision in my mind from a video that I saw, and I showed it to you um, the other night on Facebook. And this woman was smoking. And this other woman comes in and asks her to stop smoking. And she blows the smoke in her face. So the other woman is really upset. So she she goes in the other room and she comes back with a fire extinguisher. And and, (laughs) and she just blasts the woman (laughs) that's smoking. Well, that's fair enough, right? But I mean, I think it's a good visual. Well, it is. I mean, we in, in medical research tend to look for ways to solve problems that aren't really the most common sense approach. It's sort of like, well, we can make some drugs if you've had a heart attack because you're, you have all the risk factors for it and you're not doing anything about it. We can put you on a statin. We can put you on anticoagulants. We can put you on aspirin. Uh, we can do a lot of other things that may help to some extent to keep the 
heart attacks from happening. But it's like, hello, there's this thing called a healthy lifestyle, which means you don't have to take any drugs. And chances are you're not going to get those kinds of problems. So why not do the sensible thing? And it's not just about saying that you need to change your lifestyle. It's about wanting to change your lifestyle so that you can enjoy better health and then looking for the reasons why you're not practicing a healthy lifestyle. Maybe you didn't know that certain things were a problem and that you needed to eat healthy food and you needed sleep because if you don't sleep well enough, your steroid levels go up. And if they do, you have insulin resistance and leptin resistance, which cause you to eat more and to become obese. Maybe you're using diet drinks, which cause an increase in risk of heart attacks and strokes. And a lot, of, a people, lot of education. And a lot of people just accept that with age. It's like, oh, well, this is, just, this is going to happen. But yeah. I think there are a lot of things that we have a choice about yeah. how, we gra- how we age, if we're aging gracefully or not. You know what I'm saying? Because Nearly everything is epigenetic rather than genetic. And what that means is it's not the DNA that determines what's going to happen. It's the triggers in the environment that affect DNA. That's what epigenetics is about. So we can change our genetics. We can change our genetics. We don't have to trigger those genes that are causing all those problems that are going to lead us to having that heart attack and stroke or cancer or whatever else that we're we're going to be vulnerable to. There are a lot of things we can do that make a major difference, way more powerful than any drug there ever was or probably ever will be. Because our biochemistry is too complex. We don't understand it except superficially. All right, it's time for a network station break. You're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Lynn Sabuto here with Nurse Vicki. And we'll be right back with more Prescriptions for Health radio. And we'll be talking about just because a company does a public service, does it mean that they're selling healthy products? Hmm, we'll see. Welcome back to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Lynn Saputo here with Nurse Vicki. We all want to be able to eat what tastes good. Yes, indeed. But at what expense? Hmm. If you were told that a pill would help you lose weight, would that give you permission to overeat because the pill will make you lose weight anyway? Is that the same deal as the broken cookie doesn't count? Or if there's just a little bit of dripping of fudge on the side and you eat that, it doesn't count? <laughs> just licking the bowl. Lick the bowl, that doesn't count. <laughs> or right. finishing your kid's food. No, that doesn't count for or sure. Or the cookie that doesn't have very many calories, you can eat more of them. That's right. That's right. Well, a new study shows that the public has faith in weight loss pills, and it's using them more than ever, although they're causing Americans to actually gain weight. Is that something? So how can this be? I mean, is this false advertising? Can we believe the before and after pictures and, or those Photoshop? Or do these pills encourage a healthy lifestyle? There's a lot of questions here. Well, what I mean, if you're talking about believing advertising, I mean, that's all. That's a no-brainer. You can't. Because, it's so tempting, though. You know, like when I go on Facebook, like almost every day I go on Facebook, I see ads for Garcinia, oh, yeah. Cambogia. 
and I see pictures of somebody that's fat and somebody that's lo- oh, that's yeah. lost all this weight, you know. It's disappointing to see Dr. Oz fall into that and the doctors and- fall into that. They must have made a pretty penny on it because, I mean, look what happened when Dr. Oz got called by Congress and they had a hearing on it. He looked like an idiot. What happened with that? Well, he they called him and said he was doing false advertising, which, of course, he was. And he didn't want to admit that because why would he? That's going to ruin his reputation. So he tried to do the best he could to defend himself. But it was pretty obvious that he had had been supporting this uh, Garcinia product. And there was very little research to support it. Well, he still has his name all over it. Well, yeah, he can get away with a lot of things in the name of what? Dollars. Or maybe he's saying somebody else is using his name to sell it. Well, that happened too. Yeah, that happens too. Well, you know, the weight loss thing about that is is pretty weak and it's inconsistent. That's right. And the results were poor in the studies because I was reading up on that. Look. You have to give the pharmaceutical company really a lot of credit. They are so good at convincing you that you need their drug, whether you do or you don't. They're pros at marketing. Well, their job is to be responsive to who? Their stockholders. And if they don't make a profit, you get a new CEO and a new guy to manage money. The idea is to sell product. And so they say what they, are, what they can that the FDA doesn't stop them for. And, of course, they're in bed with the FDA, so there's a lot of collusion and conflict of interest. So what are we talking about? We're talking about diet pills that basically don't work, and almost all of them have side effects that are a real problem, some of them lethal. And we're still using them. I think they're fueling the obesity epidemic. Well, I think they are too. And it's for the very reason that this study... Okay, that was published in the Journal of Public Policy and Marketing in November of 2014. Looked at this, and what they found is that when people in this study were given free access to chocolate cookies, that one group was told ahead of time there was a new powerful fat-fighting pill that would be available to them. They went ahead and and ate everything compared to (laughs) the other people who weren't told about that fat-fighting pill. Of course, it was a made-up pill. It wasn't real at all. So did the ones that ate all of them, did they lose weight? No. (laughs) No, of course not. And then you look at at the side effects of these pills and the fact that what are you going to lose? Maybe five or ten pounds and you got to stay on this thing for months to years? What are we talking about? Plus, a lot of them have horrible side effects. Well, but so, everybody's looking for a quick fix, you know, to their problems. And, and often a lot of the people that lose the weight gain back more in the long run. Oh, for sure. I mean, look at some of these drugs. You look at one that's called Quizmia. Okay. And how does it work? It curbs your appetite. All right. But what is it? It's a com- it's a combination of fenteramine, which was in Fenfen that caused was taken off the market because together with the other uh, other drug that was with it, a lot of people were dying from a pulmonary hypertension. And we, have a, we have disease. a friend that died from Absolutely. that. Absolutely. And what's the other drug? Topamax, something that's used as a drug to treat migraine. Now, do you want to take those two drugs for a long period <laughs> of time to lose 5 or 10 pounds, which maybe you will and maybe you won't, plus it's going to fuel your intention, if this study is correct, that you can eat more? I mean, diet pills don't work really. Well, there's a lot of money in weight loss. There's a lot of money in diet pills. I mean, when you can get a good person with, who generally has done a great service to America, and that's Dr. Oz, 
to do what he did with Garcinia, money talks. And it's disappointing. Well, we're always seeing ads on TV about how to lose weight, you know, all the different programs from Jenny Craig to whoever. But um, yes. what it really comes down to is a diet with fewer calories and getting and living the healthy lifestyle with exercise and getting enough sleep and reducing your stress because think about deals. it if you don't get enough sleep you can gain weight if you if you have a lot of stress a lot of times people eat when they're stressed well and, you, and plus and, 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 it causes insulin resistance and leptin resistance which what makes you hungry so you're going to eat more you're going to be eating in the middle of the night even. And even, you know, too, a meaningful purpose in life because mm. that keeps your metabolism up and it keeps you busy and you're not thinking about food so sure. much. When I've noticed myself when I'm home. If I'm home all day, I eat a lot more than when I'm out and I'm busy and, you know, doing things. Absolutely. Uh, when I was playing a lot of tennis, I didn't want to eat because I couldn't eat on the – I couldn't play tennis uh, if on a full I, stomach. No, or even on a half full stomach. So I oftentimes would skip a meal. Not that I think that's the greatest thing to do. But it wasn't like food was the highest priority. So for me, I've gained a little weight since I stopped playing tennis because I can't because of my hip. But I'm, now I'm riding a bike and uh, trying to stay fit and losing some of that weight. And it's not like being a few pounds overweight is a problem. As you get older, you will live longer if you weigh a bit more. Then if you weigh less than But we're not talking about a lot more. We're just talking a bit more. Well, I'm saying maybe 40 or 50 pounds is too much. Then you're looking at other complications. But 20 or 30 pounds, it's not going to do that if you're older. The the general statistics show that you'll live a bit longer if you have a bit more weight. That much? 20 pounds? Yes. Well, it's pretty easy as you get older to do that because, you know, a year goes by and maybe you lost, you gained five and another year and another five. And that's right. You have a baby and (laughs) you get married and all those things can keep making people gain weight. You know, I've always hung out with tennis players because I played the senior tennis circuit for a number of years. It meant a lot to me. And we were all thin. Almost all of us were thin. We saw the heavier guys come along and we were licking our chops because we knew that we could run them around a little bit more and, and they were going to be toast. Sure. But as we all got older, we're all gaining weight. So now that we're... Well, you can't run around like you did when you were young, so that has a lot to do with Especially if you got more weight it. on you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's for sure. My tennis shoes in a tournament used to last three or four days and they'd I, be worn out. I know. Now they last me three or four years, it seems like. Because you can't you can't move fast enough to wear them out. But back to the uh, diet pills. I mean, some of the side effects are are pretty sound, pretty uncomfortable. Like people that are being so restless and they're 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 they get hypertension, they get chest pain, sure. they can get shaky, have diarrhea. You know that Orlistat, We used to joke about that oh, that yeah. people would take that to lose weight, and then they'd have oily stools. Yeah, well, you, that's right. You're <laughs> thinking to pass gas, and you've got a load in your pants all of a sudden. That's right. It's oily. It's oily. Besides, it comes right through your pants. <laughs> Yuck. Yeah, it's not worth that. So we're looking at something here that is, it's a reflection of what our values are at a cultural level. And it's also a reflection of how brilliant the pharmaceutical industry is in convincing us to do things that are stupid. That's how I look at that. I don't think it's it's worth using diet pills almost ever on anybody. And then, too, is it is it worth your life? Because it c- can affect not just the quality of life, but it could kill you. So, Absolutely. And I'm not saying that all of them can, but some of them can. You're right. 
Well, you're listening to Prescriptions for Health. I'm Dr. Len Sabuda here with Nurse Vicky, and it's time for Nurse Vicky's final 2020 tip on a, a reminder about the health benefits of avocado seeds. That blows my mind. When I when you first told me about that, I thought, "What are you kidding? Eating avocado seeds? You, you need a you need a, a some kind of a a mammogram on the seed to crush it." It would seem like. And when we come back, we'll be talking about just because a company does public service, does it mean they're selling healthy products? And why U.S. healthcare continues to be ranked last amongst industrialized countries. Everybody knows about avocados and how healthy they are. But did you know that avocado seeds are full of great health benefits? Really? Yep, they are. <laughs> and speaking of... How do you eat it? <laughs> well, we're going to get to that. Okay. And speaking of losing weight naturally, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you might like to add a half avocado seed to your diet. And they have tons of nutritional qualities besides. So you put this big lump down in your belly and it fills you up? Is that the idea? No, no, no. <laughs> I'm going to tell you. you. You just have to hear me out before okay. I get to it. All right. It lowers your blood glucose. Really? and that Yeah, and it helps you lose weight. Also, avocado seeds have more antioxidants than most fruits and vegetables in the market and polyphenols they have, like green tea, plus they're full of soluble fiber, more than any other food. Avocado seeds have 70% of the antioxidants found in the whole avocado, and avocado seed oil is full of antioxidants. It lowers cholesterol, and it helps fight off disease. They also help to prevent cardiovascular disease and prevent strokes. Their avocado seeds are great for inflammation of the GI tract and for diarrhea. You can start recommending this to your patients. Jeez. They have uh, lots of phenolic compounds that help to prevent gastric ulcers and prevent bacterial and viral diseases. So maybe that would be a good thing to have instead of a flu shot. I'll say. <laughs> it contains flavanol that prevents tumor growth. And also, um, it boosts your immune system, and it keeps free radicals at bay. It slows the aging process. It's a good anti-inflammatory that helps with arthritis and other joint diseases. And it also sh has been shown in studies to increase collagen in your skin, keeping sure. your skin looking young and wrinkle-free, and makes your hair shiny and helps you get rid of dry, dead skin. You sure and you it, don't have stock in the avocado? You no. Know, and in Qigong medicine, they say it gives you a high chi energy. Is that right? Okay, now I'm going to tell you how to fix it. I've been waiting for that. <laughs> I mean, it's a little, a little hard to bite. I've watched what you do, and it's a little bit scary. Well, one of the things that I do is I take the whole avocado, and I put the knife partway through I it. I know. And then and it sticks to the big knife, and then I just You're lift it up, and I whack it on the cutting board, and it just cuts it in half. Yeah, wow, scary. Sometimes half the avocado goes, <laughs> goes flying. But there are other ways to do it. Um, you can grate them and roast them. Really? You can make roast it, it? And roast it and make it into a tea for asthma. You're kidding. And and they can be dried and then crushed in a plastic bag with a hammer. <laughs> that sounds right. <laughs> and then ground in a heavy-duty blender, kind of like ours. Really? We have a Vitamixer. That's what I do. I put it in a smoothie or I put it in my green drink. Is that what gives it that gritty taste? No, it doesn't go. It doesn't get gritty at all. Okay, I put a lot of things so in my softens up in my drinks. Uh -huh. I put a lot of nuts and seeds. Uh, maybe that's other it. nuts and seeds. Uh -huh. <laughs> and anyway, you it'll grind it up into a powder, 
And also, um, it's a little bit bitter, so you want to add it to something rather than to just eat <laughs> avocado seed yeah, chips. Yeah, doesn't sound that, that good. <laughs> that's why you only use a half a seed. I see. Yeah, okay. and you could put it in sauces too, things to cover up that little bit of bitterness. But you know, like I said, I've put it in green, my green drinks and my smoothie, smoothies, and I've never tasted anything bitter. Well, that's a great tip, Vicky. Thank you. Okay, so here's a study that points out how important it is for us to be aware of emotional manipulation by do-goodies, do-good companies that encourage us to just assume that their products are healthy. And since they're known for public service, we're led to trust them. Mm -hmm. Not, we need to be aware that these health halos often encourage unhealthy food choices that are unknown by the consumer. So why don't you give us a few examples of companies that might do this? Well, I mean, the, the American Cancer Society is the one that I would look at as the most the one that does the biggest job on this. And it's not like they make a product that you eat, but they do this pink washing business. And when they are promoting things that have to do with trying to cure cancer rather than prevent them, and then they represent companies that actually make products that cause cancer, you've got something here that just doesn't make any sense. So we should be doing something about trying to see through that. And before you think pink, you got to think twice. Yeah, well, we call that pink washing. Right. I mean, there are a lot of companies that want you to buy their products, and they say some of it's going to go to cancer and all that business. Well, look at McDonald's, and, you and think, they're supporting the Olympics, okay? And they're giving us all this food. But what I was saying about the pink washing oh, is okay. that then people are trusting that trusting these companies because they think that they're doing good for cancer. Right. When, in fact, a lot of the products that these companies sell or promote have carcinogenic con- uh, contents and ingredients in them. Yeah. Especially in the cosmetic in- uh, industry. Mm-hmm. So about McDonald's and the Olympics, what were you saying? Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, McDonald's supports the Olympics, you know, and they also make some of the products that they make that are really not healthy foods at all. Yeah, and then there's like a lot of false labeling, mm-hmm. like with the GMOs. Look at look Indeed. at yeah, look at all the marketing that they did. Of, uh, what was it a year ago mm-hmm. when that was on the we're California thirty seven? Yeah, California. when that was on the ballot, and we were dumb enough to, <laughs> to tell uh, to vote it down and say no, we don't care what you put in our food if it's GMO or not. You don't have to tell us. You know, it's I like, went to a really? to the farmers market. And I was talking to somebody at the farmer's market that worked that was selling produce at uh-huh. the farmer's market, and she was opposed to labeling GMOs. And I thought, what's going on here? Yeah. They're supposed to be selling all this healthy food. So they were brainwashed also. Well, one thing that's nice is we're going to France in about a week, and we're going to be eating food in France, and they don't allow GMO foods in Europe. Oh, yay. Oh, yay I'm going to get corn. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> So, oh, isn't that interesting? Absolutely. And, yeah. Well, I don't like soy particularly anyway, but that's another big one here. Oh, almost every food we have now has got some genetic engineering that's there, and there's no way to really control where those seeds go. They blow all over the place, and even the, the foods that are supposed to be organic and GMO-free, you can't count on that anymore. Well, there are a lot of foods, you know, like granola bars, for example. They are always touted to be a healthy snack and all that, but a lot of them are just loaded with calories and sugar and 
You need to be careful about a lot of those. Well, this was done. Uh, this study was done in November of 2014 and published in the Journal of Public Policy and Marketing. And it came out of the University of Kentucky and Westminster College and Florida State University. And really what they, they said was is that socially responsible deeds create kind of like a halo effect over food like you were talking about earlier. And then when they... Because then you trust the company. You think they're doing a good thing. And what they're really doing is they're investing money to give them an image that looks good. And the image does look good. But we make the mistake of assuming because they do one good thing, that's going to do all these good things. Yeah, and, then, and, and it works for them. Well, that's right. Well, also, you know, the U, uh, we're going to be talking about another topic uh, about how the U.S. continues to be ranked last among industrialized nations as far as access to health care. And Americans distrust our health care system as a whole. But well, the majority – but I thought it was interesting that the majority still like and trust their doctors. Well, they have a personal relationship with their doctor. And, and you can pick the doctor a lot of the time that you want. And it may not be that you can keep that doctor because of the way healthcare works now. But in general, if you don't like one doctor, you look for another one. Well, the other thing we need to keep in mind is that a lot of our doctors aren't happy with the medical industry either. Oh, a lot of them are retiring early. They don't like the paperwork. They don't any longer make the choices that they want to make because they aren't allowed to if it costs too much or if it's using something that's new that's expensive. Uh, very often they can't do it. They have to get prior authorization to do it. And a lot of the time they can't get it, so they wind up on the phone and with a lot of paperwork. And, of course, that's going to get worse and worse as we have electronic medical records and they can see everything that you do and start regulating what you can and can't do in a more effective way. Well, and then to add to the confusion, the American Medical Association favors the doctors over the patients, although in 2012 they stated their vision was patient-centered care. That's part of that do-good image, too. Well, yes. Now, there are some very, very good doctors. I know one of the doctors who was the past president of the AMA, and I know he'd be deeply offended if he heard this because he's not at all like that. But in general, my observations about the AMA are just what you said. I don't trust that the AMA is more interested in patients than they are in doctors and protecting their incomes and benefits. And that's well, a sad scenario. Well, then there's the American Academy of Family Physicians now that, that have policies aimed at treating the whole person. Well, they aimed for they said their aim and their goal is for better care and outcomes and well, lower were, money. And that's really a good thing that we have people who are like that, who want to make those kinds of changes. But let's face it, doctors don't run medicine anymore. Big institutions do. And they have a one-size-fits-all policy whenever they can for a certain condition, and they expect you to fulfill those criteria. If you don't, you're out. You try to do something that's a bit different or, or complementary and alternative, you're out. You can't do it. So it's not like it used to be years ago, say 20 years ago or 25 years ago, where doctors could do pretty much what they wanted as long as it didn't hurt people. But today, with the economics the way it is, it's a terrible thing. Well, also, what about universal health care? That's not perfect. Well, um, no. Universal health care only provides health care for everybody. And now, that's a good thing to have, and we're the only industrialized country in the world that doesn't offer universal health care. We also spend $9,000 per person per year for health care compared to some other countries like the U.K. that spend about 3000 per year and, and are ranked far in front of us. I mean, we were tied... 
with Croatia in 24th place out of 29 different countries that were studied when it's looking at how much people trust the healthcare industry. They don't. And it's, it's, and it's understandable. But we still don't want to provide the health care that we are providing in today's health care system and think that that's ideal because it's not a health care system at all. It's a sick care system. So we expect to get sick, and then we have a whole industry behind it that's, the, that's geared to be able to get rid of symptoms and help get rid of, of, of the manifestations of disease. But we're not looking at wellness and prevention. We're not looking at trying to uh, keep peop- find out what the real underlying cause of illness is and, and pay attention to that. We're really getting into it, an economic model. We're no longer a democracy. We're an economy. So where does the Affordable Care Act fit into this? It's a mess. And it's not really, I mean, it's doing a little bit to give some people more health care. We had about 50 million people who were uninsured before uh, Obamacare came. And now maybe we've got 10, 15 million more people who are getting care that they didn't have before. But the ones that are are really getting more of a benefit on that are the people who are getting Medicare, uh, not Medicare, Medi-Cal, or getting uh, government insurance. Uh, So that would be like Medicaid. Uh, And and that will give you a kind of health care, but... It's not very available. You can't pick the doctor you want or the hospital you want a lot of the time. And then when you look at the rest of the people who are benefiting or supposed to be benefiting from it, they really don't because the copays and deductibles are so big, they can't afford to use the policies. Mm. So who benefits? The insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry. It's a, it's a sad scenario that we are stuck in a healthcare system that's economically based rather than service-based. And I guess a lot of these medical associations are a lot of talk like the do-gooders, you know. Well, they are. And then they what are they really interested in? Their own skin. They want to make sure that they're getting what they want first. It's sort of like our Congress. You know, they raise their salaries. They do a lot of things that are really, really good. But, uh, but they're not doing it because they're trying to help us. They're doing it because they're getting something back from it themselves. So that's what we're dealing with. So when we're looking at what the America's healthcare system is, is how well it's working, it's, it's really a huge failure that doesn't serve us well. It's an industry that takes care of itself in a way so that it can uh, continue to be profitable for business people. It's not like it's continuing to be profitable because it's going to help the American people. Well, we're at the end of the show, so... If you enjoyed today's show and you'd like to have more information on the topics we discussed in video and free access to more than 2,500 audio and video files, click on Health Headlines on the DrSaputo.com homepage. And remember, a healthy lifestyle is the most powerful healer in the universe. So if you want to be well, pay attention to the style in which you live your life.